let us now read together to what you and I confess in Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. After after the sermon, we will respond with singing from Psalm 145, stanza 1. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this afternoon we will deal with one of the most difficult issues you will ever have to face in all your life. Some people, including those who call themselves Christians, never really face that issue. And that is not necessarily because they don't want to, but because they don't know how. And the issue is to see ourselves the way that we really are. To see ourselves the way that others see us. And to see ourselves especially the way God sees us. By nature, we think that we are not such bad people. Oh, sure, we make mistakes and we sin. But there are a lot of good things that we do. We're not all bad. We have a lot of redeemable qualities. And that's what we concentrate on. Other people, and especially God, see another side of us, however. But now we come to this Lord's Day. We're told here that we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. That's quite a statement. Hatred is a strong word. Do you realize what that means? If that statement is true, then we are told that we only love ourselves, that we want nothing to do with God, that we do not want him to be part of our lives, that we resent God, that he is only a presence to be endured, that we wish him out of our lives. And we think the same thing about our neighbor. We do not seek his well-being. We do not care one iota about the interests of another person. We would rather kick them when they are down and not lift them up. We can't stand anybody. We have no respect for anybody whatsoever. We're only interested in ourselves. If an unbeliever were sitting here in the pews, then he would scoff at that notion. He would say, what's this minister talking about? That's not a true picture of humanity. Oh, sure, there are some sociopaths who may come close to that concept, but that's not true of the general population. Look at the good things that people do for others. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of love in this world. 
And so we have to ask ourselves what this catechism means. Is that really what it says in the Bible? Well, brothers and sisters, yes, it does. For example, it says in Romans 3, verse 12, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul does not say this about certain individuals. No, he says that about everybody, including himself. All of us, you and I, we are totally worthless. There is nothing good in us. We only seek our own welfare. How can we say that? Well, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, you can only say that if you know Christ. It is only through Christ that you can have an understanding of the true nature of man. Only he can make that clear to you. And that's what I'm going to preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is, it is possible only through Christ to know your sins and misery. And then we will see that to know your sins and misery is in the first place a difficult process, and in the second place a learning process. Note well that when we began dealing with the Heidelberg Catechism anew, as we did a few weeks ago, then we began in Lord's Day 1 by speaking about Christ. We did not begin by speaking about our sins and misery. No, Lord's Day 1 stands separate from the rest of the catechism. And do you know what the main point of Lord's Day 1 is, and therefore also of the whole catechism? The main point of Lord's Day 1 is that we belong to Christ. And we have to be aware of that theme throughout the catechism, especially now as we deal with our sins and misery. Christ is central. Only when you know Christ can you know the extent of your sinfulness and your misery. And that is clear from what we read together in Philippians 3. Paul describes himself the way he was before he knew Christ. At that time, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the council of the Jews. That means that he was considered one of the most upstanding citizens of Jerusalem, indeed of all Israel. He was highly respected. He was a ruler, a prince of the people. Paul himself also figured that he had something to boast about, that he had quite something to offer. He belonged to the tribe of Benjamin and therefore was a child of Abraham. His genealogy went way back. And he was circumcised, showing that he had the sign and the seal of the covenant and that therefore he belonged. And he also knew the scriptures very well. And he put them meticulously into practice. For he was also a Pharisee. A Pharisee went beyond the law. He did more than what was required of the ordinary person. And so no one would be able to find fault with him. And therefore Paul is quite proud of his standing. He has a great sense of self-worth. Paul was someone to be reckoned with. He was a man of influence. 
That was then. But then he got to know Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. And that encounter totally changed him. Whatever was important to him before was no longer important at all. He says in verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, my standing in the community and my former sense of self-worth means nothing to me any longer. My former pursuit of self-worth through my zeal and self-satisfaction led me nowhere except to destruction. I want nothing to do with that kind of thinking and that kind of lifestyle any longer. It's all evil. I've thrown it all away like yesterday's rotting garbage. Now, brothers and sisters, think about what Paul did here. It was not a little thing. It was very difficult. He grew up with a certain set of values as to what is important in life, as to what makes people admire you. He put a lot of effort into becoming what he did become, a Pharisee, an upstanding citizen, a leader in the community. His family and his friends were proud of him. They were proud of the high standing that he received in the community. And that didn't happen to him. No, he worked hard for it. For the only way that you could get to such a position was through careful and meticulous planning and through perseverance. He had invested his whole life into becoming what he had become. And then, just like that, he threw it all away. He tells everyone that such pursuit is totally worthless. How could Paul do that? Well, he makes that clear in verse 7. For the sake of Christ. Christ gives you everything that you will ever need, he says. And he gives it to you free of charge. Paul formerly thought that through the keeping of the law, he would find favor with God and with man. He thought that he could earn something. But when he learned about Christ, he learned that Without Christ, you are nothing. You have nothing. That you have nothing to offer of yourself. Whatever you do have to contribute is not really a contribution. It's only a token of thankfulness. You've all heard of the word self-righteous. A self-righteous person is someone who puts his nose up in the air as if he is better than someone else. It is someone who does not think he or she needs correction. And that's what Paul was like before his conversion. But now he says in verse 9 that he does not have a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith. Now, when are you righteous? Some of you catechism students will answer that, will be able to answer that question because I ask that question lots of times. You are righteous when you are in a right relationship with God. Righteousness ultimately means peace with God. It's a peace that is given to you. 
It is not a peace that you earn. And who gives that to you? Who gives you peace? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When you know him, then nothing else matters. For when you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need to be happy. Then your reputation doesn't matter so much. But the Lord's reputation does matter to you. For in him you have everything that you need. He has given it to you. Your identity is with him. As Paul says, when you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are also given the power of his resurrection. Do you know what that means? That means that he has given you a new life. And it also means that you will be able to share in his sufferings. For in Christ you are able to do everything. For you know that no matter what, you are alive in him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ grabbed the hold of Paul. He had him in his grip. Recently, when I was in Ontario, my sister told me about a neighbor she regularly speaks to. And this man became a Christian at a later stage in life. Before that, he swore and drank and pursued an empty lifestyle. His wife, however, regularly started going to church. She wanted him along, but she knew that he was a stubborn man and that you could not push him. And so she bided her time. She hardly, if ever, mentioned anything to him about church. His little daughter, however, did. When they came home from church, he would tell him in glowing terms about the church service. He would have to stop watching football for a while and listen to his little girl. And this went on for a few years. And then one time, his little girl asked him to come along to a special missionary service during a weeknight. He did not want to go. But for his little girl's sake, he did. He walked into, ch into the church building with his wife, and she proceeded to walk all the way to the front of the church where she normally sat on Sundays. He did not want to do that. So he sat on the back pew, ready to make his escape at any time. And he said, and then the preacher began to preach. He said, I was riveted in my seat. It was as if the preacher was talking right at me. It was as if that preacher knew everything about me. I wanted to get out of the pew and leave. But somehow I couldn't bring myself to do it. And then finally the church service was over. And he was furious. He met up with his wife and he said to her, What have you been telling that minister about me? How come he knew everything about me? She said, I don't even know who that minister is. He was a guest preacher and I've never seen this man before. Now her husband was intrigued. He went again the next evening. And again he was totally riveted by what was proclaimed from the pulpit. He couldn't escape. But he rebelled against it with every fiber of his body for... Through the preaching of this missionary, he was convicted of his sin and misery and pointed him to the need for redemption. He wanted to get out of that church as quickly as he could, but he couldn't. The Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ had grabbed hold of this man.
That was some 30 years ago. After his conversion, he continued to go to church regularly. On Sundays, he would have to go past the pub where he would often be spending his time with his drinking buddies. And they would see him go by in a suit and tie and with a Bible under his arm. And they would laugh at him and ridicule him. And he would say to those men, boys, I'll be praying for you. He wasn't ashamed of his new lifestyle. He threw his old lifestyle totally away. He discarded his old friends. He did not care what they thought of him. Why? How could he do that? Well, brothers and sisters, because he had learned Christ. That is the only way he could acknowledge his sin and misery. It was only Christ who could make his stone heart a flesh heart. And now you may say to yourself, well, it's a good thing that I was brought up in the church. And that I was brought up as a believer. At least I don't have to go through this. At least I don't have to discard my old friends and my former way of life. Because I never lived like that. Well, brother or sister, then think again. We, all of us, have to throw away our former way of life time and again. Some people, including those who regularly go to church, are especially oblivious to their sinful ways. They stubbornly hang on to their way of living and to their way of thinking. And they continue to go in their own sinful direction no matter what. They are blind to the way others see them and to the way God sees them. They have a certain perception about themselves which no one and nothing can change. And they have a goal in mind from which they will not deviate. They will pursue their own selfish ambitions with all their heart and mind and soul. And in so doing, they feel that they're doing absolutely the right thing. They feel that they are one of the most righteous persons on earth, and they will also tell you so. They will tell you that in one way or the other, or in some way communicate that to you. I'm okay, I'm fine. Actually, I'm doing better than the rest of these people. Because they're all slanderers and they're all bad people. They're all hypocrites. But me, I am beyond criticism. They will not tolerate dissent. And if you do criticize them, then you're in big trouble. And that is because they don't want their bubble to be punctured. That's too painful. It's much easier to point fingers at others and at their sins. And so they complain about everybody and everything but they see themselves as examples of godly living. Yet they profess themselves to be Christians. But most people know that they are blind to themselves and to their own sins. And it doesn't just apply to some people. Don't think that I'm saying this about other people. I'm saying this about myself. I'm saying this about you as well. You have some people who really do stand out in that regard who are really blind to their own sins, but we all have difficulties with that, don't we? We all have difficulties seeing our own sins and misery. We don't see ourselves for what we are. 
We too are afraid to be criticized. All of us want to create an image of ourselves which only shows our good side. Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, throw away your own self-image and be an image-bearer of Christ. Don't be a worldly person. For you see, that's what an unbeliever does. And that is what a worldly person does. A person of the world seeks to satisfy him or herself alone. He or she wants to make a name for himself here on earth. Oh, sure, they will, act, they will perform acts of kindness, but ultimately they do it for their own good or for the good of the world. It's all done out of selfishness. The catechism is right when it says that in the final analysis we don't care about others. That by nature we hate God and our neighbor. And so, brothers and sisters, take a close look at yourself. Do you realize what a sinner you are? Well, you can only know that if you also know at the same time already that you are a child of God. In spite of your sins. And therefore you must keep a clear conscience before God by acknowledging your sins and by daily examining yourselves and by expressing your thankfulness for your redemption. When you do that, that will change your life. That will totally change your focus in life as well. And then when you lose something near and dear to you, such as your earthly possessions or your reputation or some friends or whatever you hold dear and near here on earth, and then you will be able to go on in the knowledge that your relationship with the Lord God is more important than anything else. And therefore, you don't have to impress people. Therefore, you don't have to be right all the time either. You don't have to fight your own cause either. And you also don't need your big house or your nice shiny car in order to enhance your standing with others. Doesn't mean that you don't, that you can't own luxury items, but it does mean that your happiness and your life is not tied up in these things. For all these things are God's gift to you. Someone who has thrown away his former lifestyle has tied up his whole life with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then all the other things are rubbish. Nothing like rotting garbage. Knowing your sins and misery is difficult. Oh, sure, it is harder for some than for others, but it is difficult for all of us. And therefore, Christ has to grab hold of you time and again so that you can change for the better. So that you can throw away your self-righteousness and your smug complacency and your dependence on earthly goods so that you can throw away your former life and put on the new life. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that's an ongoing process. It's a daily process. And Paul also acknowledges that further. He says in verse 13 that he does not consider himself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing he does, says he, he forgets what is behind and he strains forward to what is ahead. In other words, behind him is that former way of life. He says, forget about it. Think about what is ahead. Think about your life in Christ. Think about your eternal life with Christ. And so he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But you have to learn to do that. And you need a teacher. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the second point. You see, you cannot do any of this if you do not know Christ, first of all. He has to teach you. And that is why Lord's Day 1 comes before Lord's Day 2. You first have to know that you belong to Christ. It is not so, as some people think, that you first have to know your sins and misery. And that only then you can be joyful about your redemption. Brothers and sisters, that's a road that leads nowhere. You won't even be able to start on a road like that. It seems logical, but it is the wrong order. Paul first experienced the mercy of Christ. Otherwise, he would not have turned from his former way of life. And you know, the same thing happened already in paradise. After the fall into sin, God did not begin with a curse on mankind. Oh, yes, he cursed. But whom did he curse? Satan. He condemned him to destruction. But he came with a promise to Adam and Eve. He promised them that he would send them a redeemer. And in this way, our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been our teacher from the very beginning. He taught us to know God. He taught us to know him through his great mercy. He taught us to know him through his great love. And that is why he sent his son in the flesh. He was the greatest teacher that ever lived. He taught with word and deed perfectly. He taught us perfectly the love of God. Look at how the Lord Jesus loved us. Even though we are blind to our sins and sin against God's law all the time, God still loves you, doesn't he? He showed his love for us through his death to us miserable creatures who continue to live in our sins. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was not an ordinary death. Everybody dies. But his death was unique in that he, the perfect man, allowed himself to be abandoned by God and by man. That is why they strung him on a cross, so that he could hang between heaven and earth, indicating that heaven and earth have forsaken him. That's the ultimate death. The ultimate death is to be in a state where absolutely nobody cares about you, and the Lord Jesus suffered that in a most terrible way, in a way of which we can have only an inkling. He gave everything that he had with his Father in heaven for your sake, for my sake. He did not consider his former glory something to hang on to. That, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
In Lord's Day 2, we are given a summary of what Christ teaches us about how we too should love God and our neighbor. In the Sermon of the Mount, Lord Jesus tells us that we may not break even one of God's commandments ever. He teaches us that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We must love like He does. Think about it. And do we really have something to boast about in that regard? Do we love God all the time? When you love God, then you have to seek His will and keep His law. We don't do that, do we? Not even close. Consistently we don't do that. And what about over against our neighbor? Think about it. Do you consistently deny your own comfort so that you can serve others? Do you have compassion on those less fortunate than you? Do you go and visit those people of the congregation who are sick or needy, and yet you don't like those people? Do you go out of your way to make other people comfortable at your own expense? Do you do that consistently? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for someone else all the time? Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, none of us does that. We try, but we fall so far short. We are too sinful. We are too selfish for that. And that is why this afternoon I can come to you with the wonderful news of salvation through your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For He has done all that for you and for me. He has supplied all the things which is lacking in you and me. But you have to realize your sins and misery. And knowing that you are in Christ, you can. You have to give thanks to Him for loving you Day in, day out. Every day he supplies what you are lacking. That does not mean that now you can be complacent. Paul makes a profound statement in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. What have you already attained? Salvation, redemption. But now Paul says, live up to that. In other words, try to obtain that which you already have in Christ. His love, His mercy, His kindness. His unselfish ways. Live up to that. And so, today, the Lord God once again puts you to work for this coming week. As Paul says elsewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Know your sins and misery. But first of all, know that you're a child of God. And now you can go on again. Now you can go on again in the strength of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given you the power of the resurrection. He has given you a new life. To Him be the glory. Give thanks to Him by showing God's love to others and to return His love to you. Amen.